I'm Anthony Penn. Welcome to Pen Drop. Candace Gorham is a licensed professional counselor with a background in middle and high school education. Candace's religious background covers a range of perspectives from Jehovah's Witnesses to Methodism. She's a former evangelical minister entering ministry early. Her ministry included some of the really energetic activities like casting out demons. And anyone who knows anything about evangelical ministry, evangelical worship, knows that casting out demons is a big deal. Not just anybody can do that. As is a common story for those of us who leave theism, the failure of Christianity, for example, to address profound suffering and the Bible's contradictions and moral and ethical shortcomings result in us having to get out. There were profound questions her faith couldn't answer, so she left, moving, as Candace describes it, from being an unaffiliated believer to being an atheist. Recognizing this story was shared by so many black women, she founded the Ebony Exodus Project, which explores why black women are leaving the church. In 2013, she wrote a marvelous book by the same title. She's a member of the Secular Therapist Project and the Clergy Project, and she's the author of the recently published book on death, dying, and disbelief. And we're going to deal with that book, but let's begin by first saying thank you for joining us. I'm so excited to be here and finally get a chance to sit down and talk to you. Yeah, this is this is fantastic. Now, there's a whole lot I want to cover in our time together, but let me say this. Uh, in reading on death, dying, and disbelief, one of the things that stood out for me is how deeply personal it is. You open your life to readers, and all of us who write books will argue yeah, there's something of me in this book, right? Something about the book is autobiographical, but not quite like this. And one of the things that caught my attention, I I had to sit with this for a minute, was the way in which you marked out certain statements with a star indicating, as you wrote, this is where you cried. I had never encountered anything quite like this. Now, in the book, you say that you're writing it for two reasons. One, Non-theists need this. They need to know how to deal with grief. And with that, I give a secular amen. But you also say it was an opportunity to deal with your own grief. Now, I, I, I have to believe that there's something about this book that's also tied to earlier life and earlier experiences, that there's something about this book that's also tied to your move from theism into what you label non-theism. Is, is that right? Oh, yeah, I would say I guess you could argue that because, um, you know, like we, like, you know, the whole premise of the book is that, you know, we as non-believers, non-theists, atheists, humanists, you know, we don't have the same um, resources to latch on to when we're grieving. Right. And so I was 
I came out of a tradition where I had a plethora of resources, you know, in terms of prayer or, you know, built in support network and, you know, all of those things available to me if I were grieving. Whereas now as an atheist, as a non-believer, non-theist, I don't have those things. So, I mean, you know, I guess you could, you could argue that, yeah, you know, it's coming from a place of having had one experience and now having a, a totally different experience, you know, dealing with grief. You know, I, I I don't think we can tell our stories of deconversion too often or with too much energy. Folks need to hear this, right? That you can leave theism, develop a secular set of values, and be all right, right? That you can you can survive this move. Can you you know? But I'd like to hear a bit more, if you're willing, concerning that transition, because you weren't just in church. I mean. So, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses and evangelical Christianity, I mean, these are deep, engaged, all-consuming forms of, of religiosity. This isn't easy to leave. So, I, you know, I'd be interested in hearing more concerning that backstory. What conditioned that le- that, that departure and, and how did that occur? Mm-hmm. So with the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, my my dad was actually was the Jehovah's Witness, and um, my mom was never really into it. She did it because her husband told her to do it, and uh, you know she she I could tell that you know even as a young child I could tell that she wasn't really feeling it. Um, my parents separated when I was like nine, ten years old, and. It, the crazy part of it was, you know, when my parents separated immediately, my mom was like, mm, I'm not going back to the kingdom hall. Y'all don't have to go to the kingdom hall. And immediately my brother and my sister didn't go to the kingdom hall. But I, in my super, you know, I don't know what it was about me as a child, but I was really into my religion. Um, continued to do like a home study. So there was this family that would come around every week and I would go to the kingdom hall with them. I would do, you know, like the annual memorial services, you know, Easter, they don't call it Easter, of course, you know, I would do all of those events and stuff with that family. And, um, so that to me, that was one of those things Like, like I said, even as a child, I was way more serious about my religious beliefs and convictions and my religious practices than, you know, people around me and my friends would always pick on me. Like, yo, what are you, like, you, yo, let's go to the park, man. Like it's time to play. <laughs> you over there trying to read the Bible. Like what the hell? <laughs> and, um, and so, um, then I, when I got to middle school, I, I finally did drift away from the Jehovah's Witnesses, but only because I started going to like the family church and that's how I got into the Methodism. Um, and so my dad's like his mom and dad and you know, his, what he, the church that he grew up in, aunts, uncles, cousins, the family church was United Methodist. And so I started going to that church with my aunt and my cousins and all of them. And so that's how I got into that. And um, I was confirmed in the Methodist tradition and I was in the choir, the children's choir. And, you know, I did all of that stuff and was baptized. Um, I went through all of those processes there. And, um, and then, you know, I got to high school and got a little job, got a little boyfriend, you know, do what you do You know, when you're in high school and you got a boyfriend. And, um, you know, so I drifted away from church a little bit. And but then my senior year in high school, my sister married this pastor. And that's where things start to get interesting. 
Um, you know, she married this pastor and I decided that I wanted to follow my sister down the path that she was going down. And he, he was the one who brought this interesting, I mean, the more extreme, um, religious practices into our lives. And he was the one that was, you know, into the casting out demons and the praying for seven, 10 days at a time. And, you know, um, like you know, street evangelism, prophesying. Like I, 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 I joke, but yeah, you know, I'm always telling people, I'm like, I can still prophesy, and you know, ten dollars, I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. <laughs> so, and so, so that's how I got into that. Um, you know, was with my my sister marrying a pastor, um, and uh, and so I got we, you know, I got into that and got married and my husband was into it and you know it, it, my whole family was into it you know he that was my sister's you know my sister's church and so it, the whole family started getting into it and um and so I after a little while um I started going through some things it, we got we were able to sort of break away from that church specifically because my sister and her husband moved to California so we we kind of lucked up really to, to be able to break away from that really extreme um flavor of Christianity because simply by virtue of the fact that they moved away um so we started going to another um a, another church that was still a mega church still a prosperity gospel church but they didn't do the more extreme casting out demons stuff but it was the you know you got to give your tithes you got to give your offering now you got to give a second offering now you got to give a third you know it was this that type of church and so um so I got into that with that church and it was very much like if the pastor would literally say like his, one of his favorite lines was, if you're not living like me, you're doing something wrong. Mm. And he, you know, he, his wife drove a Mercedes and he drove a Harley and they lived in a gated community and, you know, they didn't release the fine, his financials of the church. They didn't release the church financials. To, and so it was like, you clearly are leading, you know, a, a prosperous life. And so to say to the people, you know, if you're not living like me, you're doing something wrong. I really internalized those messages. And so I really did believe I was doing something wrong because, you know, my house went into foreclosure and I lost the car and I was, you know, severely depressed. And I mean, my marriage was so like I was really going through a tough time in my life at that time. And so I thought, what if I am seriously doing something wrong? And so I started I said, let me you know, consider some new things. Let me restudy. Let me go back, try this again. I'm, I must be doing something wrong. What am I doing wrong? Let me, you know, pray some more God. Let me. And so I started studying again and studying harder and looking at new texts and considering new things and new ways of, you know, thinking about Christianity and thinking about God and religion. And I studied myself right on out of religion. That's So that's how that happened. That's how it all came out was I just, it just, you know, the more I studied, the more I considered that, um, you know, doing like comparative religious studies and things like that and seeing the overlap and, um, you know, just I just studied myself right on out. That's pretty much it wasn't an emo. I, I like to tell people all the time, you know, it wasn't an emotional decision. It wasn't I'm angry at God and you know, it wasn't mm -hmm. any of that. It was pure and simple and intellectual process. You know, we share Methodism. For you, United Methodism. For me, it was the AME Church. For those who don't know, that's the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And it was all 
consuming. And, and our church wasn't the typical AME church. It was much more evangelical, concerned with the gifts of the Spirit, right? Speaking in tongues, dancing in the Spirit, casting out demons. It was all consuming. And, and growing up in it, I did not have the ability to distinguish myself, right? My sense of identity, who I was, was intimately connected to this church, I described myself, I thought about myself using the vocabulary and grammar of that church. I could not detangle myself. Like you, I moved into ministry, and I'm certain we shared a sense of of how you measure out a productive ministry. Our folks finding Jesus, right? Folks getting saved. Mm -hmm. Our demons being cast out, right? Is the Mm -hmm. body of Christ growing? Is it being respected, cherished, and our folks growing in their knowledge of the Lord, right? These sorts of things. And, and I think our movement out was, was somewhat similar as well, right? And I think our story is the typical story, and, and that makes a lot of sense. For me, it was the inability to explain the world. It was the inability to offer anything that really spoke to the well-being of the folks I cared about, right, that I didn't have anything in my theological bag that allowed me to speak to well-being in a way that appreciated embodied human life, right? And it reaches a point, and it seems to have reached a point for both of us where you have to make a decision. Am I about safeguarding this tradition, or am I about speaking the truth to the human condition? And what am I willing to give up to be able to speak honestly about the human condition. You left and I left. But I'm, I'm interested in, in this. Just a, another question for you. So it, it seems to me within our shared religious experience, there's a set of values that we are given. right? A set of values that are meant to guide how we move through the world. And I'm curious... What of those values did you leave behind and which of those values did you take with you? Let's see. What values? Oh, that's a good question. What values did I leave behind? Um, I think I would say some of the stuff that I left behind, I think, would be things that were sort of, I would say now, felt like judgmental type things, you know, stuff that had to do with, you know, like, you know, things that beliefs about who's who's going to go to heaven, who's going to go to hell, right? Like LGBTQ, something is wrong with those people, right? Uh, or, um, you know, th- like what makes you a good person? What makes you a bad person? Um, you know, the fact that you can just sort of live a, you know, you can live a, 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 a crappy life, right? And then just pray, on your deathbed and, and voila, you know, you good to go in the sweet by and by, you know? So, I mean, I, I think the stuff that I let go of would be things that like I, I was, I would consider myself to have been a very judgmental person. Now, obviously back then I didn't think I was a judgmental person. You know, I thought, Oh, I'm living in the love, the, you know, the love of the Lord. That's all I'm trying to, you know, share the, 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 you know, the word of God. And, um, and I, I did go through a period of time where I just had went, I had a lot of guilt and I had a lot of 
um, and you know, just a, a lot of guilt and a lot of shame inside of me about a lot of ways that I was judgmental and a lot of ways that I, um, um, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe not necessarily mistreated people, but I know that I hurt people, um, just doing what I thought was the right thing, you know? And so now stuff that I really value now are things like autonomy, personal choice, um, you know, uh, you know, as long as you're not hurting people, right? You're not hurting other people, you know, living a good life. How do we, you know, define and living a good life by, you know, making your own meaning and not depending on, you know, some sort of external definition of meaning. Um, so I, I, a lot of what I let go of and gain has to do with, you know, like I said, judgment and how we, a lot, I, my humanist side of me, my humanist identity, part, part of my identity is really important to me. Um, you know, obviously I identify as an atheist, but the humanist side of me is really important. And I, and it's because of that centering, you know, humans and human life and we're all we have and we've got to take care of each other. And so that part of me is very important to me. And I think as a, when I was a Christian, you know, obviously I paid lip service to like, oh, you know, this is all about taking care of each other and saving souls. But, you know, we, we know like it was all about Jesus, right? It was all about God and saving souls for Jesus, you know? Um, whereas now, you know, it's, there's no for Jesus. It's like, I just want to do good for the sake of doing good. I think one of the things I had to come to grips with when I left the church was the degree to which the values I had embraced were opposed to life. Now, this is what I mean by that. That the values were so oriented towards the soul and heaven, right? And, and, and positioned me to be so suspicious of this mm. material world mm. that I mm. did not have a way to really appreci- uh, to appreciate embodied life within the context of human history. This stuff wasn't what was important. This was just what we had to go through to get to what was important. And so it was a bit of a challenge to move from that theologically formed system of values to a secular sense of values that was all about how you produce well-being for embodied bodies within the context of human history, that this is what we have. How do we work with this? a sense of vulnerability that Tony Penn, the minister, didn't have to face, right? Because God was on the throne and all was well. But this secular set of values that is still about fostering life, it's about love, it's it's about, it's about proper conduct, it's about deep respect, is solely reliant on us. Mm-hmm. Nothing but us to get this right. So now you and I came to a conclusion that this theism doesn't work, that it's not substantive enough to move us through the world when we left. Why do you think so many black folks stay within religious organizations? 
Mm. And, I, and I ask that not as an accusation. We get enough of that within humanist conferences and other gatherings, right? The finger pointing. But I'm, this is just a genuine curiosity. Why, why do you think? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pull on Ebony Exodus Project, right? And, and the interviews you conducted with respect to folks leaving. What, why do you think so many remain? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think there's a couple of layers to that. I think, you know, on like black, white, whatever, you know, I think that there's a psychological part of it, right? And how like Daryl Ray, right, talks about the God virus, right, and how it can kind of get in and it takes over us, you know, psychologically in it. Um, and so I think there's that aspect of it that, that has, you know, just sort of get in, it gets in and it takes over and it kind of overrides our uh, critical thinking skills and, and you know, religion, it takes a hold of like fear, you know, and it, it controls us through those mechanisms. And so I think that there's a big part of that that's, that is operating obviously, you know, in the, in super, you know, in the, in the lives of black people, period. And then I think for black people, there's also, uh, you know, black Americans, especially, right. We, there's a part of it that is life for black Americans is, has historically been so, so rough. This, the reward is in the afterlife, right? Like, we're going to suffer through now. Now is not great. You know, Jim Crow is hard. Reconstruction is hard. You know, like these periods, right? These periods of time are really hard and, and we know it. And this is horrible. And we're going to suffer through this American life right now because our reward is in the is in the afterlife. And so I think, you, you know, you just latch on to it whatever you can latch on to the kind of that gives you some sense of peace. And so I think we, we, we as black Americans sort of had that unique experience that, um, that creates a trauma bond with religion. Um, you know, so we've got, you got the fear, you've got the God virus, you've got all those things that are already that, you know, that already is at play for any human. And then you add on top of that, our trauma, traumatic history and our trauma bond with religion and then it just becomes a, you know, it just becomes a kind of a, like a repeating pattern, right? It just becomes like a, it's like a generational curse. <laughs> the religion itself is the generational curse. It just keeps passing down from one person to the next. I, I think it's important that we keep it real, right? That we're having a, this conversation. I, I'm really enjoying this. And, and I appreciate and I agree with everything you've said. I also think particularly... When white humanists and atheists ask that question, they fail to recognize the ways in which humanism and atheism in the context of the United States has not been very welcoming. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. Getting rid of God yes. doesn't mean you get rid of your racism, your sexism, your homophobia, etc. Mm. And, and yeah. so I, I want to believe that some remain in the church despite the theology and they remain in the church despite the theology for the sake of network and community. If nothing mm. else, this is a place where you don't have to explain why you're angry. It's a place mm. where you don't have to worry about folks coming to you uninvited and touching your hair. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's a place where you don't have to worry about folks coming up to you and saying, you know, you're not like the others. And while you speak well. Right. That the black church gets a whole lot wrong. It has never gotten gender right. 
Forget about sexuality. But it has been a space away from the larger, the larger connotations and consequences of white nonsense. And it seems to me until humanist organizations, humanist communities provide a soft space to land, black folks, whether they are theist or not, will find something useful in churches. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, they're definitely, I mean, we can't pretend that the black church has not provided positive, you know, something of benefit to the black community at various times in some ways, one way or another, you know. And I would say, you know, I've done, you know, some of my interviews that I've done in the past, I mean, people have definitely said, you know, yeah, I feel like I get something, you know, something positive out of it. I got community, you know, I get this, I get that. Um, You know, I have a friend right now who is, he's, he's a non-believer, but every now and then he just finds himself just really drawn, you know, to wanting to go to a church because, you know, he, like you're saying, you know, he can't seem to find a um, secular community, like literally what you're saying is what he has said. You know, he can't find a secular community around him that he feels comfortable in. And so he has this incredible sense of loneliness. And what he remembers is that church gave him a sense of belonging. And so it's all, it's almost like a drug. It, like when I hear him mm-hmm. talk about it, it sounds almost like somebody craving a drug. Like I can't get this fix. And, uh, and I know I can get the fix if I go to church. <laughs> and, um, and then and he's like, but I know it's no good. It's just going to hurt me, but I really want to go. And uh, so, I mean, I definitely have, you know, I know people personally and I've done interviews with people and, they, and exactly what you're saying is true that, um, you know, they don't believe all of what they're hearing or what they're being taught, but they do get something from it. And so they continue mm-hmm. to go. And I think we have to, I, I think it's important to, to remember that churches are also businesses. So the civil yeah. rights movement, the, the value of the church wasn't the theology. The value of the mm-hmm. church wasn't the prayer. The value of the church wasn't God. The value of the church was it was a physical space where folks could gather and strategize. The mm-hmm. value of the church was its ability to network, to get information out quick, fast, and in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And again, until humanists develop comparable communities that constitute a soft place to land, folks are going to get it elsewhere and put up with a whole lot of abuse for the sake of that network. Right? So to say, I'm, I'm going to, I don't believe what the preacher is preaching, but I go there for other reasons. You open yourself up to a whole lot of harm a significant number of problems for the sake of something secular organizations ought to be able to provide you. If what you need is community, what you need is a place to catch your breath, and you ain't about this theology, we humanists and atheists ought to be doing a better job of of providing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's true. Like We should be able to. We should be able to. It's the numbers of us are definitely growing enough that, you know, the demand is there for sure. You know, one of the things, another thing I found really, really interesting about your new book was your perspective on the religious. 
right? That there's mm. uh, there's often a, a tendency within humanist and atheist circles to simply belittle the religious. Mm. Or if a religious person happens to communicate with you using their theolo- theological vocabulary, they're going to catch a verbal beatdown, right? The religious person says, God mm-hmm. bless you. They're going to catch a verbal beatdown. But mm-hmm. you provide a different perspective on this, mm-hmm. right? The idea mm-hmm. that when a religious person, a theist, uses that language, uses those phrases, they're simply trying to demonstrate care using what's available to them. Mm-hmm. Can you say mm-hmm. a bit more about that? I just found that so very interesting, so very appealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when you are grieving, um, you are just at the bottom of the barrel. You know, you have minimal energy. You have minimal life in you. You have minimal... I mean, you're just really at the bottom. And I, one of the, you know, part of the point that I make is like, you, you just, you just don't like, don't use your, your precious little resources to like battle with the, with somebody because they say, you know, God bless you. And you, when you sneeze, you know, or even to battle with you, if they say, you know, can I pray with you? You know, you, if you want to say no, thank you, then say no, thank you. But I don't see the point of being, you know, going into like a tirade behind that sort of thing. Um, which, you know, like you said, plenty of people will do. Um, I make the point in the book that, you know, speaking to an American audience, you know, this is a, the majority of people in this country probably hold some sort of a religious belief of some sort. You know, majority of people going to hold some sort of belief in an afterlife or something like that. So you can just assume that if you tell somebody that you're grieving the loss of somebody, somebody, then nine times out of 10 or six times out of 10 or whatever, seven times, you know, whoever you're talking to is probably going to like have some kind of religious or spiritual framework to approach you from. And, and that has, you know, that's just the reality of the society that we live in. And so when you already are, you know, scraping the bottom of the barrel just to get out of the bed and go to work in the morning or go to school in the morning, you know, why fight a fight that you're not going to win because this is the society that we live in, you know? And so I just say, like you said, you know, they're giving you the only thing that they can think of that they have, you know, and grief is such an ugly, scary lonely thing if somebody is trying to give you the only thing that they can think of you know I just I don't see the point of responding out of anger in that moment you know that if you you know like I say in the book you know if you know that they're sort of you know, approaching you like that because they know you're an atheist and they're trying to use this as an opportunity to get at you. Like, mm-hmm, see, I bet you believe in God now. You know, if you know they're coming at you with that kind of attitude, then fine, give it to them. You know, but <laughs> you know, but if they're coming at you because that's all that they know how to give you, then you know, why turn this into an ugly mm-hmm. moment? Because when this, when you barely have this, you know strength and energy to kind of to just breathe. And Candace, you say that you you write this book, and I, I think this is absolutely true, because there are so few resources on grieving for non-theist. And, and so I, I need you to help me wrap my mind around this. You say that you use the category of non 
theist for a variety of reasons. One being because of the spiritual dimensions associated with it. Help me understand what you're getting at. Yeah, I kind of struggled with that one, you know, myself a little bit. And, um, you know, if you, you know, if you just kind of break it down for at the core of what it is, right, it, to a certain extent, it is just sort of another way to say atheist, right? You know, theist is, you know, belief in a God, non, you know, no, no belief in a God, right? Um, and so I just, it, I just kind of um, felt like it was, a, you know, it's a, a more, maybe a little bit more of a generic term right now. It's, it's, it's I think it's not laden with as much, um, with as much, uh, you know, heavy connotation as like a, like atheist or something like that. Uh, so it's maybe a little bit more of a, a, a gentler word, I think maybe is kind of what I was going for because the topic is so heavy already. Um, you know, I don't, didn't want the argument and the discussion to be around the language, you know, that's being used. And, um, and so that was kind of what I was going for was just sort of something to kind of take the focus off of like the language of, you know, what I'm talking about and, and just to focus on, um, you know, the, the audience that I'm speaking to knows who I'm speaking to, you know? And so, um, you know, it's just sort of a way to kind of, um, kind of soften, soften the language to a certain extent. You know, I'll just say that bluntly, you know, I was trying to soften the language a little bit. And you also, you also rescue and recast some other vocabulary that we typically associate with theist, like ritual. Mm. And you talk about the importance Mm. of ritual. Now, within the context of humanist and atheist, there are a whole lot of folks who are like, nah, I'm not with that. That mm-hmm. ritual is for the theists. We don't do this. Why do you? Why do you argue? Why do you think it's so very important for grieving non-theists to appreciate and form ritual? Mm-hmm. I think um, <clears throat> you know ritual and you know, performing rituals is just something that is is something that you know the research shows us humans have been doing since we've been human. You know, since we've been homo sapien, we've been doing rich rituals of various kinds, right? For religious reasons, for spiritual reasons, for, you know, to get the sun to come up and to get the grain to heart, you know, grow. And, you know, we've been doing rituals for every kind of reason to mark occasions, to have babies. And, um, you know, and so we, we do rituals all the time. You know, we just don't, we don't realize that we do rituals all the time and we don't call them rituals. And um, they're very, I mean, they just, it's just satisfying. I think it's a satisfying thing as a, as humans to kind of have something that's a standardized thing, something that you can look forward to. I think part of, especially, especially like if the, like with grief and with death, even Especially if it's unexpected, but I, I believe it can happen even when it is expected. It, it you know, you you're never really prepared, right? Even when you do expect it, you're never really prepared for that loss. And so to have sort of to kind of develop some sort of a ritual that gives you a sense of like predictability, gives you a sense of standardization, something that I can hold on to, you know, something tangible that I can, that I can say, this is what I'm doing today. I'm going to, you know, today I'm going to the grave and I'm putting flowers and I'm going to do that every first Sunday of the month. I'm going to the grave and I know this and this thing 
is standard and stable and I can do this. There's just something um, I think that that happens to be able to have something predictable in our life on a regular basis. So I wouldn't dare try to tell you what you're saying, but humor me. This and and this is what I think I hear you saying. Kind of under all of this is the idea that non-theists have surrendered too much to theists. We've given mm. away more than we need to give away. Mm. And as a result, we have cheated ourselves out of the ability to be creative, imaginative, and poetic with respect to our relationship. And one of the things that you want non-theists to wrestle back into their sense of self and their sense of community is ritual. Right? There are Absolutely. folks in ritual studies who argue that ritual is simply repeated activity and founded space. And whether humanists and atheists want to recognize it or not, humanists and atheists do ritual. Anytime mm-hmm. they get together at the AHA meeting every year, mm-hmm. do the same sort of stuff, greet folks mm-hmm. in the same sort of way, that conference is the location for ritual activity. When American mm-hmm. atheists get together every year, That's ritual. And I think you are just being wonderfully intentional concerning our use of ritual and bring it into an area where humanists and atheists are typically rather clumsy and awkward. How to deal with loss. How to mourn. Oh, you said that way better than I said it. (laughs) I don't think so. That's perfect. That's perfect. And I I think I love the way that you said, you know, that we need to sort of rescue some of this language and feel comfortable to use it in our own way. You know, it kind of makes me think of the um, Black Nonbelievers Cruise. Mm -hmm. And um, I've been to three of the four. And every year I'm like, you know, like you said, there's some things that I would consider to be rituals like the last night at dinner. We all get a shot and we do a shot at dinner. And then, you know, we always take they give you know we get a bottle of wine in our room so we all if everybody takes their bottle of wine they hadn't been drunk and we all go out on the deck on the last night and we sit around and we drink the bottles on like there are things that we do every year you know on at the same time at the same place at the same yeah we absolutely do ritualistic type things all mm-hmm. the time that we don't even think about that we don't even call them that yeah. And here, I think, is the difference between non-theistic ritual and theistic ritual. That theistic ritual is meant to make us less human. That is to say, it's, it's meant to highlight the God in us, right? To subdue the material human. Whereas non-theistic ritual is meant to enliven and celebrate our humanness. Right, That theistic ritual is vertical in nature. It's meant to urge us to look beyond our earthly social engagements. But non-theistic ritual is meant for us to understand and appreciate more fully the way we interact with with other folks and within the larger context of life. In in terms of, of grieving, you provide... 10 tips, right? The book really revolves around 10 tips, 10 things non-theists ought to be thinking and doing as they move through grief. What would you, what would you label one or two things that non-theists 
typically get wrong with respect to grief? Hmm. I think that one thing is what we talked about already, which is that they may be uh, misdirect energy. You know, they they focus on like uh, arguing with people about, you know, God getting into discussions about is a person in heaven or hell or getting into discussions about especially like let's say the person was a a non-believer or let's say the person was you know maybe a nominal Christian or you know maybe they you know what I'm saying like kind of getting into discussions with the family about the beliefs or non-beliefs of the deceased person or or just getting into arguments about religion in general you know a lot of times you got gatherings and you got more people coming around and so there's going to be more discussions about religion and all of that. So I think um, I think people's buttons get pushed, you know, their buttons get pushed a little bit harder, a little bit more because everybody's around and everybody's talking about religion. And so people's buttons get pushed more, they get pushed harder, they get pushed faster. And, and so people end up getting into debates and discussions and arguments around religion. And, and I think that, again, like I said, when you're grieving, you really just don't uh, like. I I don't recommend burning your energy on that. Um, I think, um, and this may not be specific to you know non theists. This may be you know common to a lot of people. But I think that people also neglect their um, you know their mental health. Uh, you know, of course, I think people um, just write it off as grief. Which you know it is right, but they don't re- don't uh, recognize the value of getting some professional support during that time. Even though it is grief, and maybe you're not clinically depressed, maybe you're not you know you're not developing schizophrenia. You know it's not it's not pathological, but that still doesn't mean that you could not benefit from professional support. So I think a lot of people miss that. They they think it's just this, and therefore I don't need professional support. But the professional support could really go a long way towards making it less unpleasant. Could you talk a bit about the 10 tips, how you came up with the 10? Um, What is the basic takeaway of these 10 tips? So the way I came up with the 10 was a combination of, some of them were just pure and simple things that helped me. You know, like one of them is like reconnect with nature, right? That's just plain and simple. I knew me, you know, I knew off the bat it was going to be a, a chapter in there that was going to talk about nature. You know, I'm a licensed professional counselor, so I know off the bat there's going to be a chapter in there that's going to talk about mental health. Um, so some of it's just because of my personal experience and my professional expertise, um, and then some of it is also because of questions that uh, that people have asked me like that like the very first tip is I think it says something like you have supernatural things that look like supernatural experiences you know and and it's okay those are like questions that I that people have actually asked me so the the tips come from various you know places of things I've actually been asked things that I've experienced and per and professional expertise and um and then the the 10th 
tip is actually it's more of a it's actually not for a person who's grieving themselves it's for somebody who's just trying to support somebody who's grieving and so that was um those tips were you know it was really practical things like how what can you do to help somebody who's grieving and so that was a, a me reflecting on what would have helped me you know like my editor you know input from my editor and you know just other people that I talked to that were grieving and put from them what what was helping them what was important to them so that was that last tip was the same sort of thing you know it's kind of a crowdsourced list of you know what what people say helped them as I was reading your book I this phrase kept echoing in my head from Thoreau's Walden live deliberately Mm. Right. So at the end, you know, you have lived. Right. I'm paraphrasing. But that's the general idea. And that that kept coming back to me as I was reading your book. And I I found with these tips a way to kind of think about living deliberately. Um, And and with these tips. So in in terms of crying, for example, it it, it, it's an encouragement to, to live deliberately on one level because it encourages us to be aware of ourselves to be aware of how the world touches our embodied selves. And I just found that powerful. And I also kept thinking as I was reading that these circumstances are different for Black people, whether you are theist or non-theist. The circumstances and the pervasive nature of grief, they're different for Black people. Black people have to teach their children how not to die. That's deep, right? Mm-hmm. Black people have to teach their children how not to die. That's far different than being able to teach your children to be curious, to be imaginative, to touch the world and be touched by the world. For us, that touch of the world can be deadly. And so I think there are ways in which I, I, I would agree with you that there are ways in which the tips that you provide work for us regardless of our particular life circumstances. They work for us because we live in the context of a social world that is death-dealing. You, I'm going to get you to write book, too. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I think that I think you're making a great point, you know, to, to say that we live in a world that's death-dealing and to say, you know, that well, I like the way you're saying, you know, we I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, right, to, to have to say that we, we have to teach our children how not to die, right? Even in the best of circumstances, we still have to teach our children how not to die. Um, and I don't know, that's just a powerful phrase right there, I really. And how does that not weigh on you, right? If you have to teach your children how not to die, how does that not weigh on you in a way that has physical, emotional, psychological, affective consequences for those children and for those who have to tell those children how not to die. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. We have not been conditioned. We've not been taught how to deal with the impact of that stress. Well, we have been taught to deal with what we've been taught is to pray, go to church, read your Bible. True that. (laughs) That's the only strategy we've been given. We haven't been given any other strategies. And the problem with that strategy, right, is if you think in the Christian context, it's a tradition that is dependent upon suffering. Mm-hmm. Right? The major, mm-hmm. the major marker for that tradition is the Christ event. Mm-hmm. 
the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection. It is a tradition that is built upon the usefulness of suffering. Mm -hmm. How can that tradition then teach you how to deal with loss, with mourning, mm -hmm. with grief? Add to that the death dealing consequences of anti-black racism. How does that tradition that privileges and celebrates suffering teach you how to move beyond suffering? Mm -hmm. That's a tall order. Yeah, no, exactly. Mm -hmm. Now, in the book, you, you say this. Acceptance is not about being okay with loss. It's about allowing the loss to be a part of your life in a different way. Mm -hmm. help, help me understand that. Mm, that's hard. That That is really difficult. So when I think about, um, you know, my loved one and losing him, he's very much still with me on a daily basis. I, you know, it's been two and a half years and I, I think about him daily. Um, I still talk about him on a regular basis. Um, I had a whole episode about him just the other day on the phone talking about him and had a whole breakdown. I think he's incorporated in my life in a different way now because I've written this book and I talk about him and I, you know, and I, and I cry about him at conferences in front of people, you know, and I, uh, so he's still very much with me, but he's with me in a different way. Um, and mm -hmm. I continue to celebrate him and I continue to share him and I continue to, um, memorialize him on like daily, you know, and on a, in a new way on a regular basis. And so I think that, uh, you know, it is, I'm never going to be okay, you know, with, with him, you know, not being here and the way he left. And, uh, but I'm much better than I was two years, you know, a year ago, two years ago. And I have a way to, to deal with it. And I have a way to, um, you know, incorporate it in my life that is helping me to deal with it, you know, in a constructive way. And so I think, you know, that, the, that is the healthiest way, you know, a lot of people just kind of a lot of people would try to just sort of sweep it under the rug, don't talk about it anymore, you know, lock the kids' bedroom and, you know, leave the leave it just like it was the day the child left and never touch that bedroom again or, you know, whatever, right? Never, like, unpack your husband's side of the closet or whatever, right? They just kind of let things freeze in time and, and don't deal with it. And, you know, you... I think the the healthy thing is you, you really got to figure out a way to kind of continue to like celebrate that person and remember that person and talk about that person and, 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 and continue to let that person be a part of your life, even though they're not there physically. The Pin Drop Podcast with Anthony Pin is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at OnlySky.com. Dot media. Thanks for listening. See you next time for Pin Drop.